Welcome, everybody, to the latest edition of the Pound for Pound podcast here on the Fight Game Media Network. This is your host, the original great Rob Silva. And today, we will go over all the action from Saturday night. We will uh, do another Q&A session, but this will be short. Only two questions this time. And I will read my historical bio of my 14th greatest fighter of the last 45 years. The greatest fighter ever to come out of Nicaragua. The explosive thin man. Alexis Arguello uh, Before I continue You guys out there You're interested I do a Monthly Patreon podcast On the Fight Game Media Patreon podcast It's The link is in the description of this podcast Wherever you're listening For $5 a month Not only do you get Exclusive coverage on professional wrestling And mixed martial arts by the bevy of great journalists from Fight Game Media. You also get my rundown of the greatest upsets in boxing history. And I just recorded the latest one that should be out this week. So you guys, when you uh, subscribe, you can get all that wrestling and mixed martial art content. Plus my look at the greatest upsets in boxing history. This will be the eighth one I've done. And this week's... Uh, greatest upset in boxing history that I just recorded that will be out is Cassius Clay slash Muhammad Ali's shocking upset of Charles Sonny Liston, February 25th, 1964. Now, on to the weekend's action. First, I want to talk about the fight in England between Dillian White and Jermaine Franklin. Jermaine Franklin is a mid-heavyweight at best. He is, he, to me, he's a trial horse. He's a gatekeeper. He's not that good. Yet, he outboxed, out-hustled, and out-fought Dillian White. Yet, he got robbed. Dillian White is washed up. He has no business in the ring anymore. He struggled with a, a barely decent heavyweight. He got knocked out. He got almost put to sleep completely by Tyson Fury in his last fight. He struggled against Alexander Povetkin, who knocked him out in the first fight, and then he knocked out Povetkin in the rematch. He struggled with Derek Chisora, another washed-up heavyweight, who's getting a shot at Tyson Fury soon. Dillian White has no business in the ring. It's time for his ass to retire. He's done. Stick a fork in him. I've always felt he was overrated, and now that he's past his prime, He's going to be a punching bag for uh, up-and-coming heavyweights, including one I'm about to mention, Bakador Javalov, who, in my opinion, right now they're overrating him. Um, it was the main support to last night's main fight that I'll be talking about today. Bakador Javalov is not that good. I mean, yeah, he's got a good jab. He throws punches he throws combinations. But he's fighting bums. The guy he fought last night, Curtis Harper, was a fucking bum. He was a zombie. I guarantee you, the minute Bakador Jalilov steps up in competition and fights the Jared Andersons of the world, even even a guy like uh, Frank Sanchez, while 
that's a 50-50 fight because Frank Sanchez, to me, is a decent heavyweight, but he's not a world beater. Jalilov will struggle. Jalilov has a long way to go, in my opinion, before he becomes an elite heavyweight. Yet, Ray Flores and Boom Boom Mancini, who called the fight last night, were already talking about, oh, he give Deontay Wilder a run for his money. Ray Flores, shut the fuck up. First of all, every fight, Ray Flores sounded like he was Mauro Ronaldo last night, screaming at the top of his lungs, oh, Jalilov! <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I said this before and I'll say this again. This era of boxing announcers is the worst era in the history of professional boxing. I repeat, this era of boxing announcers are the worst set of announcers in boxing history. It's pathetic. There is no such thing, ladies and gentlemen, right now as a boxing announcing team in which every member is solid. No, I take that back. Showbox, when they have Brian Campbell, Steve Farhood, and Raul Marquez, that's a solid boxing uh, uh, team. That's the only one. Raul Marquez last night was his usual excellent self, but he had to complete. He had to compete with two screaming idiots in Ray Mancini and Ray Flores. What the? Hmm. Maybe because their names are Ray. I'm just fucking around. Anyway, Ray Mancini. Ray Mancini was a better fighter than he is a, a boxing announcer. He's not that good. He's like, and they were hyping this guy Jalilov like he's the greatest thing since the Klitschko brothers bored the hell out of the heavyweight division. He's not as good as the Klitschkos. Oh my God! Anyway, enough of Jalilov. He knocks out a zombie and Curtis Harper in the fourth round. And um, if they put him in the ring with Deontay Wilder, Deontay Wilder is going to give him the same treatment he recently gave Robert Hellenius at the Barclays Center. Now. On to the main fight of the weekend. The fight for the for the vacant WBC Super Lightweight Championship. I predicted Regis Pro on another platform. I predicted Regis Pro Grace would win by a 12-round decision in what I thought would be an exciting fight. Well, it wasn't exciting until the 10th round. I gave Jose Cepeda the first round. And then progress from rounds two to nine. Regis progress from round two to nine. Completely dominated the fight. Behind a right jab that was elite. That was phenomenal. He was doubling and tripling his jab. Throwing punches and punches. Throwing combinations while Cepeda was moving. Progress was walking him down, but he was throwing one punch at a time while Progress was pumping that jab, busted Cepeda open, was dominating the fight, and yet, for some strange, inexplicable reason, throughout the fight, Cepeda's corner was telling him he was winning the fight. How? I gave Regis Progress eight of the first nine rounds, and they were easy to score. There weren't any rounds where you like, did uh, Cepeda do enough to steal that round? No. Tenth round was an action-packed round. Early in the round, Cepeda hurt Progress. Middle of the round, Progress hurt Cepeda. Late in the round, right before the bell rang, Cepeda hurt Progress. 
So I had to give that round to Cepeda. Then round 11, Prograce came out, landed a beautiful right jab, left cross combination, staggered Cepeda, was battering him until the referee stepped in and stopped the fight. Great job by Ray, Con- Ray Corona. He stepped in, stopped the fight. Regis Prograce, once again, is the WBC super lightweight champion, and now he sets himself up for some great fights because 140 pounds right now is stacked with Teofimo Lopez, Ryan Garcia, Tank Davis, Josh Taylor. It's a lot of very good. Uh, Gary Antoine Russell. It's a lot of very good 140-pound fighters fighting right now. So where does Prograce go next? Well, Prograce fought this fight on Fight TV last night. He's a probellum fighter. And he can fight whoever he wants to. He's got a title. If I was Prograce, I would try and get the winner of the rematch between Josh Taylor and Jack Catterall. If Josh Taylor wins again, but this time legitimately, unlike the first fight in which Catterall was robbed, I would love a Prograce-Taylor rematch because Taylor beat Prograce in one of the greatest fights in the history of that division a few years back. Love to see that fight. I'm glad Prograce decided not to stay at welterweight. Junior welterweight is perfect for him because he wouldn't be as big at 147 physically. At 140, he stands out, and he was in phenomenal condition last night, and he was as fresh in the 11th round as he was in the first round. Great win by Regis Prograce. Definitely the best win of his career, and the 33-year-old New Orleans native has a lot of big money fights in front of him. If he continues to win, if he continues to fight the way he fought last night, he dominates Cepeda. I will love, another guy, Jose Ramirez. I would love to see him fight Jose Ramirez because Jose Ramirez is an aggressive fighter and he will bring the best out of progress. I don't know what the hell Jose Cepeda was doing last night, running and trying to outbox progress. His only chance was to try and slug it out, and he had some success in the 10th round when he did, but then in the 11th round, I guess the 10th round, he had shot as low because the 11th round, he walked into that left hand, and it was bye-bye. Referee saved him from going to the ropes. <laughs> now, on to the Q&A session. I only have a couple of questions this week, so let me get to the questions. Hold on. For those of you who want the, your questions answered on the podcast, ask Rob Silva. Hashtag ask Rob Silva. All right. And here we go. First question is from my man, Dread, And Dread asks, thoughts on Haseem Rockman as a fighter? And Dredd asked, asked this because he knows both Haseem Rockman Sr. and Jr. Dread, when it comes to the best fighters to ever come out of Baltimore, Rockman is probably third. I would give Joe Gans is the greatest fighter ever to come out of Baltimore. The first black athletic superstar in American sports. He's the Joe Gans, turn of the century, turn of the 20th century, early 1900s, was the best lightweight in the world. And a lot of people claim a lot of boxing stories claim he was the best fighter in the world at that time. And he was the first African-American 
superstar athlete. And he was tremendous. Uh, and the politics were against him because he was a black superstar. They would make him uh, weigh in four or five times before a fight to try to get him to miss weight, to try to strip him of his title. Uh, the referees would allow his opponents to try and rough him up and land low blows, and they would look the other way. But if he, if he as much as clinched, they would warn him and say they'll take a point away from him. Joe Gans not only had to, not only had to be better than his than his white opponents, which he was, he had to be ten times better. That's how bad Joe Gans was. Unfortunately, Joe Gans died young. And um, when I do my uh, greatest lightweights, matter of fact, go to fightgamemedia.com. And check out my article on Joe Gans I wrote a few years back. And I give you a, a, a complete rundown of his lightweight reign and his career as a fighter, as being the first black superstar, black athletic superstar in America. He's first. Tank Davis, in my opinion, is the second greatest fighter ever come out of Baltimore. And his story still hasn't been written. It's still being, it still hasn't finished being written. Um, Tank Davis has the potential to maybe one day supplant Gans, but right now he's in a good position. He's got two tough fights coming up, and if he wins both, which I think he will, he sets himself up for a major fight with either Regis Prograce, Devin Haney, or Shakur Stevenson. So uh, Tank Davis has made a lot of money so far in boxing, and if he continues to win, He's going to make even more money. And the third best fighter I ever saw come out of Baltimore was your family friend, Haseem Rockman Sr. Haseem Rockman had a lot of great tools. He had a beautiful left jab. He had a nice right cross. Rockman's problem, Dredd, was his lack of stamina. It cost him twice against Olive Moskayev. In both fights, he was dominating, and then Moskayev came from behind and knocked him out. It cost him against the Klitschkos. It cost him, well, it didn't cost him against uh, Lennox Lewis. When he beat Lennox Lewis the first time in South Africa, April of 2001, which is one of the fights I covered on my Patreon podcast, Greatest Subsets in Boxing History, he knocked out. Lewis in the fifth round with a beautiful right cross. Beautiful right cross. And Lennox never made any excuses. He lost. He got caught and he lost. And then Rockman got full of himself. And he he was talking a lot of shit in the upcoming in the in the weeks leading up to his rematch versus Lennox Lewis. He signed a deal with Don King, which he shouldn't have. He should have stayed a free agent. He went and signed a deal with Don King. And Rockman at first was going to try and fight Mike Tyson, but the courts overruled Don King and Haseem Rockman and Mike Tyson because he Lennox Lewis had a rematch clause that could not be supplanted. So he went and fought, fought Lennox Lewis in a rematch, and he made a lot of money. I think he made $15 million for that fight against Lennox Lewis. Lennox... Put him to sleep with a beautiful left hook, right cross combination. Rockman's head bounced off the canvas in the fourth round. Lewis with a spectacular knockout 
one of the greatest knockouts in boxing history, one of the greatest knockouts in heavyweight history. And after that, Rockby was never the same. That knockout took a lot out of him. In his next fight, uh, he got head-butted by a van to Holyfield. What else is new? And his head swole like a Martian. I mean, he looked like a he looked like a monster character from a Halloween movie or from a 1930 Universal movie. He looked scary. And he lost by a technical decision. Uh, I thought in his first fight versus James Tony that Tony got robbed. And then they fought a second fight that was that ended in a no contest. Moskayev knocked him out and then Klitschko batted the shit out of him. Rockman actually became WBC champion again because uh, Klitschko had retired. Klitschko comes out of retirement and batters Rockman. And for all intents and purposes, Rockman's career was over. Rockman had the ability, Dread, to be better than his career was. And then that's not saying he didn't have a, a decent career. He had a decent career. He's a two-time heavyweight champion of the world. At one time, he was the universally recognized heavyweight champion of the world. Second time, it was one of 100 belts. The first time, he beat the man who beat the man. When he beat Lennox Lewis, Lennox Lewis was considered the only heavyweight champion of the world because the WBA champion, uh, it was either Evander Holyfield or John Ruiz at the time, paled in comparison. Remember, Holyfield had lost to Lennox Lewis, and John Ruiz was a uh, was 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 a butcher shop butcher as a heavyweight. He wasn't that good. Oh, John Ruiz, he was so horrible. Rockman had a very good career, but it could have been great had he had a better chin and had he uh, worked on his stamina. His stamina, I think it was stamina more so than his chin because it's no disgrace to get knocked out by Lennox Lewis, one of the greatest heavyweights of all time. But you lost twice to Oleg Moskev, who you were a better fighter than. You lost twice by late round knockouts to a guy you should have won both times. He was ahead of, um, in both fights before he got knocked out. So um, I'm not going to say he had a disappointing career, Dredd. He had a good career. It could have been greater. But in my opinion, not enough for the Hall of Fame, but still a, a career that most heavyweights in boxing, and over 90% of the heavyweights that ever fought in boxing history would sign up for Haseen Rockman's um, career. So thanks again, Dredd, um, for asking that great question. Now, I got one more question. Let me get to it. Okay. Uh, Mark Anthony, uh, frequent listener. I mean, he's a loyal listener. He asked, who you got in this one? I got Tank outboxing him if need be or a knockout for sure. That's Tank Davis for versus Ryan Garcia, which is scheduled to happen next April. There's a couple of hurdles that have to uh, be cleared in order for this fight to occur. Tank Davis is a very tough fighter in Hector Garcia that he's fighting in January. That's not a guaranteed win. I mean, I'm I. Tank's a better fighter, but Garcia is a tough fucking cookie who beat the hell out of Chris Colbert. Now, Chris Colbert is not as good as Tank Davis, but when he beat Chris Colbert, a lot of people were 
claiming Chris Colbert was going to be that next one. He's not that next one. He's Chris Colbert is overrated, right? With his goddamn um, colored hair. Oh my god, he's a clown. Uh, Hector Garcia is a tough fighter. Um, Tank's got to be on his A game. If Tank's on his A game, he wins that fight. Then he's got a trial in February. That if convicted, he's going to prison, and that could conflict with the Garcia fight because the Garcia's fight in April. If he gets convicted in February. Judge is not hearing, oh, let's delay his sentencing until May. He's not hearing that. So Tank has got to win two fights against Hector Garcia and the judicial system. So let's say for all intents and purposes, he wins both fights and he fights Ryan Garcia. Well, Mark, I don't predict major fights like this until the week before the fight. So. Come back in April, late March, April, if everything goes well for uh, Tank Davis, if Ryan Garcia doesn't have another mental breakdown, and I will predict who I think will win that fight. So I will save my prediction for the show before the fight, the show previewing that fight, if and when that fight happens. Now, on to my 14th greatest fighter of the last 45 years. And for those who want to read all the articles I've written, I'm up to my number nine. The last article I wrote, my ninth greatest fighter of the last 45 years is on fightgamemedia.com. All these articles I've written, I'm reading now. I'm up to number nine on the website as far as my articles go. And as far as me reading them, Audiobook style. I'm up to number 14 right now. And for those who want to hear 45 to 15, you haven't heard them, go back to the archives and you will see these are this archive, the fight game pound for pound podcast archive. And you go the past 32, 33 weeks, I've run it down. And, and this is now my number 14. I've read each article from 45 to 15. And now I'm reading number 14. The greatest fighter ever to come out of Nicaragua, Alexis Arguello. Alexis Arguello. Oh, he's such a beautiful fighter. The first fighter my father educated me on other than Muhammad Ali was the Nicaraguan great Alexis Arguello. My father loved his fighting style, a very tall and lanky fighter who threw multiple combinations and never wasted any punches. Arguello ruled the 126-pound featherweight division in the mid-1970s before deciding to move up to 130 in 1977. Since this list covers the years 1977 to 2021, his dominance at 130 pounds is where we will begin in breaking down why he's the 14th greatest fighter of the last 45 years. My father described Arguello as a godlike figure. The first time I got to see him fight was on the afternoon of January 28, 1978. He was challenging the Puerto Rican WBC super featherweight champion, Alfredo Escalera, in our native Puerto Rico. My father thought Escalera had a chance because he was as tall as Arguello, 5'10", and he had speed and power. He also told me not to get my hopes up because Arguello was one of the greatest fighters he ever saw. It would take a Herculean effort by Escalera to defeat the powerful Nicaraguan. It was a Herculean battle. Round one saw Escalera box beautifully in Atlanta, Aguayo. Aguayo was a notoriously slow, slow starter. 
it usually took him three or four rounds to warm up. By round two, Arguello seemed already warmed up as he knocked down the Puerto Rican champion early in the round with a quick left hook. He then landed several bombs the rest of the round. Round three and four saw the Temple of Fight rise to a very high level. Arguello landed the more damaging blows, and he opened up huge gashes over both of Escalera's eyes. Escalera began round five by moving more like he did in the opening stands. Over the next six rounds, Arguello responded by exhibiting incredible ex- exhibiting incredible ring generalship. He used his battering ram of a jab to negate Escalera's movement. He totally frustrated the hometown favor by landing that jab at will, followed by the occasional left hook and right cross. By the end of round 10, Escalera's eyes and lips were badly swollen. My father was highly impressed at the boxing ability Arguello was displaying. Even though I was upset, upset that Escalera was being taken to school by a better fighter, I realized that Arguello was something special. Escalera changed the strategy and began pressuring Arguello in round 11. Arguello stayed calm and outboxed Escalera. The 12th round saw Escalera seriously hurt Arguello for the first time in the fight with, with a wicked right cross. As soon as Arguello's knees buckled, my father and I jumped in excitement as we knew Escalera needed a knockout to win. Escalera opened up a cut below Arguello's right eye and now both men were bleeding. Escalera was unable to finish off Arguello before the round ended. Midway through the 13th round, Arguello was back in control and landed a left hook that practically gripped Escalera's upper lip off. <laughs> ah. Referee Arthur McCanty called timeout and brought the doctor to check on Escalera. Mercanti and the doctor rightfully called the halt to the fight, and Aguayo was the new champion. Amazingly, the Puerto Rican fans didn't riot. Instead, they gave both fighters a standing ovation. Aguayo was a beautiful man, both inside and outside the ring. He was a consummate gentleman, and fans all over the world, even after he defeated their hometown hero, would treat him with the utmost respect and admiration. Like many legendary fighters, he would go into your backyard and wrest the title and wrest the title from you. Arguello would give Escalera a rematch on February fourth, nineteen seventy nine. After their blood, blood, bloody battle of Bayamon a year earlier, I didn't think Arguello had a shot at regaining his title from Arguello. Escalera had suffered such an immense amount of punishment in the first fight and had lost his last fight before the rematch. Arguello, too, had lost the fight before the rematch as he moved up to 135, 135 pounds and lost to the crafty boxer Villamar Fernandez. And that's another fight I covered in the Greatest Upsets in Boxing History Patreon podcast. Uh, my uh, overview of Villamar Fernandez's shocking win over Alexis Arguello. Arguello always had difficulty with fighters who constantly moved. Escalera was going to stay right in front of him. My father echoed those same sentiments. As we sat in our living room to watch the rematch, we were rooting for Escalera. We also knew his loss was inevitable. The first three rounds were similar pattern to their prior encounter. Arguello boxed Escalera from the outside and completely dominated him with his jab and accommodations. Escalera realized from what occurred in the first fight that he had to press the legendary Nicaraguan, but he just couldn't get past his opponent's punches. The same pattern continued in round four. Arguello was now beginning to hook off the jab and dropped Escalera with a left hook off the jab. The same thing happened early in round five, resulting in Escalera going down hard. 
Escalera got up and, and was in bad shape. Arguello attacked and trapped him on the ropes. After Escalera was stunned with yet another left hook, a horrendous cut opened up above his right cheekbone. Referee Angelo Poletti stepped in and administered a standing eight count. Escalera was now severely damaged and hurt. He went all out and engaged Arguello in a firefight the rest of the round. He survived the round and even briefly stunned Arguello with a right before the round uh, right before the round ended with a hard combination. Arguello went back to boxing from the outside and opened a nasty cut above Escalera's left eye. Round 7 through 10 saw Escalera fought Arguello force Arguello into a firefight. Escalera began landing double left hooks and hurt Arguello several times and opened a nasty cut over the Nicaraguan champion's right eye. Just like their first fight, which was aptly named the Bloody Battle of Bayamon. The rematch had both combatants bleeding profusely. My father and I couldn't believe that Escalera actually had a chance to win, but we knew that knocking out Arguello was an improbability. Arguello regained the upper hand in round 11. He jumped on Escalera early in the round and landed several hard shots to Escalera's battered face. Then he went back to boxing and landed at will with several head-snapping combinations. Escalera was now vividly tired. He he had extended so much energy in slugging it out with Arguello that the effects were taking its toll. Round 12 saw Arguello once again stay outside and control the pace of the fight with a superior jab. Escalera was unable to lure Arguello into another firefight. Finally, in the 13th round, Arguello landed a phenomenal left hook off his jab that knocked Escalera out. Arguello consoled Escalera like the gentleman he was. This fight was the beginning of my idolizing Arguello. He would become one of my five favorite fighters of all time. The next 18 months saw Arguello successfully defend his title against a who's who of future and former 130-pound title holders, Bazooka Lamone, Bobby Chacon, Rolando Navarretti, and Cornelius Boza Edwards. Arguello batted and stopped each of these world-class fighters in his methodical way by standing tall, boxing brilliantly, and landing with one of the greatest right crosses in boxing history. Outside of his two fights with Escalera, Arguello was never in danger of losing his crown. Late in 1980, at the prime of prime age of 28, Arguello abdicated his crown and moved up to 135 pounds. It was Arguello's quest for a third world title at a third in a third division. Arguello struggled in his first fight at lightweight, winning a disputed 10-round decision over 135-pound contender and future champion Jose Luis Ramirez. This earned Arguello a shot at the reigning WBC and Ring Magazine lightweight champion, Jim Watt. The Scottish native Watt was a cagey southpaw who my father was worried about because of his movement. The best method my father felt for Arguello to perform at his best was to fight tall from the outside and utilize his potent jab. That's exactly what Arguello did. On the afternoon... Of June 20th, 1981, Pop and I watched Arguello on CBS Sports Spectacular put on one of the finest performances of his career. Arguello used his three-inch height advantage to his full to his full advantage as he controlled the Scottish softball with his lethal left jab. Arguello dropped Watt in the seventh round with his patented right cross and continued to outbox Watt the rest of the way 
to win a lopsided 15-round decision to now become a three-division world champion. Watt immediately retired, and Aguayo began to set his sights on becoming the first four-division champion in boxing history. After knocking out the very popular Ray Boom Boom Mancini, the same Ray Mancini I criticized early in this podcast for his horrendous announcing last night, Aguayo decided to move up to face, in my opinion, the greatest 140-pound fighter of all time, Aaron Pryor. The 27-year-old Pryor was one of the most dynamic forces ever to step inside the squared circle. Pryor fought with endless energy and willpower. He would swarm over his opponents like a windmill and had devastating power in both hands. He was also one of the most avoided fighters in the history of boxing. The WBA 140-pound champion was unable to acquire a major payday until Arguello stepped up and challenged Pryor for his title. My father took me to see this fight on the night of November 12, 1982 at the same Puerto Rico theater that showed all the big close circuit fights of that era. Going into the fight, he reminded me of the fact that Aguayo always had difficulty with boxers who moved and stayed outside. Pryor was a very aggressive fighter who threw punches and bunches. My father felt that Pryor was going to walk into one of Aguayo's huge counters and be knocked out. The first four rounds saw Pryor rush at the 30-year-old Aguayo like my father predicted. Early in the opening stanza, Aguayo hit Pryor right on the bottom, but right on the button with a right cross that momentarily stunned him. Pryor shook it off and proceeded to outslug Aguayo and stun him twice with his own right hand in a frantic and fa- fast-paced first round. This was the greatest first round I had ever seen, ladies and gentlemen, until three years later when we got the first round that ever existed in Marvin Hagler versus Thomas Hearns. Rounds two to four saw the same pattern repeat itself. Pryor would attack Arguello, and the two all-time greats would hit each other with one bomb after another. Pryor had the advantage in these exchanges because of his superior hand speed. There was no way these two fighters could keep this frenzy pace going on for an entire 15 rounds. Pryor did what great fighters do in the fifth round and adjusted his style. He went from taking the fight to Arguello to moving side to side and boxing from the outside. From rounds five to ten, Pryor used his superior foot and hand speed to befuddle Arguello. He landed his underrated jab at will and Arguello couldn't deal with it. Arguello would land an occasional right cross. But every time he did, Pryor would come back with sizzling combination after combination and then move out of harm's way. My father couldn't believe the boxing IQ that Pryor was displaying. He had figured that Pryor's machismo would do him in. Pryor was making his transformation into boxing immortality. The next three rounds saw Pryor not move as much due to fatigue. The two boxing giants once again exchanged bombs while inside, Arguello landed several wicked right hands that caught Pryor but didn't move him. Arguello landed one of the best right crosses I've ever seen in the 13th round that snapped Pryor's head back like a bobblehead doll. My father and I couldn't believe that Pryor wasn't knocked out from that. Not only did that shot not hurt Pryor, it didn't slow him down as Pryor continued to land one big shot after another. After the 13th round ended, my father expressed to me that Arguello was done. Nothing was getting in the way of Pryor winning this fight. Between rounds 13 and 14, Pryor's trainer, Panama Lewis, gave Pryor, black, gave Pryor a black bottle that contained an unknown beverage. 
While many boxing pub pundits cried foul play, I always felt that it didn't matter what Pryor drank that night. He wasn't going to be not denied a victory in the biggest fight of his career. Pryor came out roaring in the 14th and landed a lethal right cross left to combination that, sta that staggered Arguello. Pryor then landed a fusillade of unanswered punches to the head and body. 25 to be exact, until referee Stanley Christodoulou stepped in and stopped the fight. Arguello fell down in a heap against the ropes. Aaron Pryor proved he was the greatest 140-pound fighter of all time that night in Miami. Ten months later, Arguello took a terrible beating at the hands of Pryor before taking a 10-count as referee Richard Steele counted him out while Arguello, fully conscious on his knees in the 10th round, knew better to, to rise as he was beaten by a greater fighter. Arguello made two comebacks over the next 12 years that were both insignificant and did nothing to either add or subtract from his iconic career. After finally retiring for good in 1995, Arguello decided to become involved in Nicaraguan politics. It is eerie how my father once compared Alexis Arguello to his beloved Roberto Clemente. They, were striking, they, they both had striking similarities. Both men were gentlemen who gave back to their native lands. Both men were very political. It is ironic that Clemente died attempting to bring a plane full of food and medical supplies to Arguello's homeland of Nicaragua right after a devastating earthquake had crippled the Central American country. Arguello became mayor of Managua, Nicaragua and was found dead just eight months after taking office from an alleged suicide on July 1, 2009 at the age of 57. A gunshot to Arguello's heart was ruled a suicide. Two iconic Latin athletes, lives taken way too soon. My father had passed away nine years before Arguello's untimely death. Had he been alive, he would have cried as intensely for Alexis as he did when Roberto died. He would have also believed what I believe, that Arguello's death was no suicide. In my opinion, it was a state-sanctioned assassination. Alexis Arguello is my 14th greatest fighter of the last 40, 45 years As far as great men who were fighters as well He's my undisputed number one Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for listening again I will talk to you great people next week So, for everyone at the Fight Game Media Network And the Pound for Pound Podcast This is the original great Rob Silver saying Be blessed and be a blessing